transmitting live from the top of the Empire State Building on 99.5 FM, WBAI New York, Pacifica Radio for the Tri-State Area. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Conrad Tokyo, Sparrow, Pistachio, Justin Nash, Dog is off the Have you changed your mind at all about being willing to sit with Robert Mueller? Well, the problem with sitting is this. You have a group of investigators, and they say that I am not a target, and I'm not a target. But you have a group of investigators that are all Democrats. In some cases, they went to the Hillary Clinton celebration that turned out to be a funeral. So you have all these investigators, they're Democrats, in all fairness, Bob Mueller worked for Obama for eight years. You look at the statements that were made. If you take a look, as an example, at the Rod Rosenstein letter to me prior to the firing of James Comey, just read it. Put it in the air. Your viewers don't know about it. Put that letter on the air. It very much speaks very loudly. And that's just one thing. So I would say this. If I could be, I would love to speak. I would love to. Nobody wants to speak more than me. In fact, against my lawyers, because most lawyers, they never speak on anything. I would love to speak, because we've done nothing wrong. There was no collusion with the Russians. There was nothing. There was no obstruction. That was President Donald Trump speaking to a gaggle of reporters on the White House lawn over the rumble of his Marine One helicopter on May 4th. The letter the president was referring to was from Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein recommending the firing of FBI Director James Comey. Much to Trump's chagrin, Rosenstein was put in charge of the Russia probe after Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused himself from the investigation after he was caught lying under oath in Senate testimony about his contact with Russian operatives during the 2016 presidential campaign. In the letter, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein castigated Comey on his handling of the, quote, conclusion of the investigation of Secretary Clinton's emails, specifically Comey's decision to write his letter to Congress about his reopening of the Clinton email investigation on October 28, 2016, less than two weeks before the presidential election. Though on May 11, 2017, two days after firing Comey, Trump told Lester Holt of NBC News that his real reason for dispensing with its FBI director was, quote, this Russia thing. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. One year into special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and the picture seems foggier than ever. Earlier today, the polling organization Navigator Research released the findings of an online survey of registered voters that found that a majority of Americans do not believe the Mueller investigation has uncovered any crimes, despite guilty pleas from George Papadopoulos, Michael Flynn, Rick Gates, Richard Panetto, and Alex Vanderswan. And as reported in Vox, 13 Russian nationals and three Russian companies have been indicted on conspiracy charges and some on identity theft charges related to Russian social media and hacking efforts. 
Last week, as reported in Reuters, the eight Republicans and seven Democratic leaders of the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee unanimously agreed with the intelligence agency's assessment that Moscow sought to interfere with the 2016 U.S. election to boost Donald Trump's prospects of becoming president. The Senate Intelligence Committee finding was a sharp rebuke to last month's all-Republican House Intelligence Committee report, which found no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russian officials, but did cite what it described as quote-unquote poor judgment and ill-considered actions by the campaigns of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, as reported by CBS News. With new developments coming nearly nonstop in the Mueller investigation, you could be forgiven for not being up to speed. Even professional pundits and journalists paid to follow the Russian collusion investigation can have trouble keeping up. But this kind of confusion and piling on appears to be a strategy being employed by Trump's legal team, just as his attorneys would dump a mountain of documents on his foes to muddy the waters of a legal matter in his real estate mogul days. That's why now, more than ever, it's critical to pay attention, and why shows like ours need to make our best attempt at breaking down what's going on into digestible or at least comprehensible bites. On Trump Watch, while we've covered the Russia investigation on the show before, one reason we haven't focused more on it is because our typical focus is on the ways in which the Trump administration is transforming the world around us and affecting our daily lives. That, and there was no lack of coverage of the Trump-Russia connection, or Trussia, as described by CBS News' Ed O'Keefe. But with Mueller's investigation continuing to expand over the past year, it's become undeniable that its influence can be felt across all of Washington, D.C., and by extension, the whole nation. So, to help bring some clarity on the state of the Mueller investigation at the one-year mark is David Korn. We spoke earlier today. Joining me now is David Korn the Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones and co-author of the 2018 New York Times bestseller, Russian Roulette, The Inside Story of Putin's War on America and the Election of Donald Trump. Hello, David. Welcome to Trump Watch. Thanks so much for joining me. Good to be with you. I want to start with the story that's been consuming a lot of the coverage of the Mueller investigation this week, and that is, of course, President Trump's demand via tweet on Sunday that the Department of Justice, quote, look into whether or not the FBI slash DOJ, Department of Justice, infiltrated or surveilled the Trump campaign for political purposes. And if any such demands or requests were made by people within the Obama administration, with Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein issuing a statement hours later that he would refer the matter to the Department of Justice's Inspector General Michael Horowitz, do you believe this will have any major effect on Mueller's investigation? No because it's fiction. There's nothing here. It's not real. It's a shiny object that doesn't exist in the real world. I mean, Donald Trump is doing what he is and his minions have done from the very beginning of the Trump-Russia scandal, which is to just keep throwing phony narratives up against the wall to see if anything sticks, and if even if it doesn't, it ends up distracting people in the media and the political universe uh, for for at least the time being, being for at least long enough it takes to debunk, to debunk what what uh, Trump and others are claiming. Um, Mueller himself 
is in some ways immune from this. He is doing his investigation, which seems to be expanding to include pay-to-play issues, things that might involve even the Middle East now, and, you know, doesn't have to respond, doesn't have to answer to these silly but in some ways dangerous tweets from the president. Could you talk a little bit more about the ways that it's expanding? I assume your reference to the Middle East was, I believe, the New York Times report that there were several other countries also involved in possibly helping the Trump campaign. Yes, the New York Times had a very significant report a few days ago uh, talking about a meeting with Donald Trump Jr. and a emissary, a fellow named George Nader, who represented the uh, princes that run Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And in this meeting, they discussed ways in which they could help um, the Trump campaign. This was in August of 2016. Also in that meeting was an Israeli fellow who owns a social media campaign that uh, specializes in manipulating public opinion. And also in the meeting was a fellow named Eric Prince, most uh, infamous for having run the Blackwater security company that got into trouble in Iraq when its uh, security team killed a number of civilians, and he's been involved in a lot of other controversies. He is, his sister is Betsy DeVos, who's the education secretary in the Trump cabinet. And oddly, or not so oddly, Eric Prince, during the transition, had a meeting in the Seychelles with a Russian businessman that was set up by United Arab Emirates in what looks to some people to have been an effort to create a backdoor channel between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. So there's a lot of, I mean, sometimes you can feel like Carrie in the TV show Homeland, you know, trying to put together all these different pieces. But we've seen the uh, an overlap between the Trump-Russia scandal and Michael Cohn, Trump's lawyer and fixer, and his pay-to-play scandal, and even his involvement in a uh, payoff of $130,000 to Stormy Daniels, the porn star who claimed to have had an affair with Donald Trump. So a lot of the stuff is all kind of becoming lumped together. Um, and I can understand why to many people trying to pay attention at home, it seems very unwieldy and very difficult to keep track of. Which is presumably what the president and his legal team want. Well, what they do want is to keep making this seem messy and complicated. So, you know, with the help of people like Devin Nunes, the Republican House member who chairs the Intelligence Committee, they keep coming up with alternative narratives that really only exist in a distorted reality that you see on Fox News. So, I don't know, a year or so ago, they try to make the issue unmasking. People might remember that. That was the whole idea that people in the Obama administration had looked at intelligence intercepts to find dirt on Trump associates. But 
it turns out no one did anything wrong and that these folks had the ability and even the obligation to look at these intercepts to understand what was going on in, in, in certain episodes. Then they raised a fuss about FISA warrants, which are super secret warrants that the intelligence community uses to spy on people who are thought to be involved in counterintelligence or in espionage activities. These are apart from criminal actions. And they try to make an issue that these uh, these warrants were improperly obtained, and there's no evidence of that either. They do everything they can, Trump and his Republican enablers, to draw attention away from the fact that Russia did attack the United States with information warfare in 2016, and the Trump campaign, even if they did not collude in the actual hacking of computer systems and dissemination of stolen emails and the like, that the Trump campaign helped by denying this was going on and creating um, sort of cover for the Russians while they were doing this, while at the same time reaching out to them secretly behind the scenes to establish some form of communication. So, I mean, those are the, those are the core matters here. And instead, Republicans and Trump, you know, keep trying to come up with these phony stories, such as Obama bugged me in the Trump Tower, and they were, which, you know, do not survive any degree of scrutiny, but they do command media attention until they burn out. Speaking of unmasking, the fuel for the recent round of attacks on U.S. intelligence agencies from the president appears to be a report on Friday in the Washington Post that a longtime U.S. intelligence source and University of Cambridge professor named Stephen Halper had met with three different Trump campaign officials in the spring and summer of 2016 while aiding the FBI investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. What do we know about Halper's role in the Mueller investigation? And do you believe there's any merit to President Trump's claim that he was illegally surveilled by this man? There is no evidence that the FBI did anything illegal and that they spied on Trump or his campaign. We know that, you know, from some time during the campaign, at some point, it became clear to people in the FBI counterintelligence world that there were unusual connections between people associated with the Trump campaign and Russians. This includes some of these names may now be familiar to some of our listeners here. Guys like George Papadopoulos and Carter Page and even Michael Flynn, who had gone to Russia uh, to participate in the 10-year anniversary celebration of RT, its English-language propaganda outlet, in which Flynn was paid $45,000 to be at this, and he ended up sitting at a head table with Vladimir Putin. So if you're in the FBI counterintelligence world, and you see these things, you see that Carter Page, who had been recruited by the FBI, uh, excuse me, recruited by you know, Russians, in 2013 as an information source, not necessarily as a spy, is now working for Trump and going to Russia and having meetings with Russian officials, you start seeing a pattern of Russian 
intelligence trying to worm its way into Trump's presidential campaign. And in the past, Russians, Chinese, and other foreign bodies have tried to do similar things and certainly have, have tried to hack into the computer systems of presidential campaigns on both sides of the aisle. Um, if you see this happening, you're worried not so much perhaps that Trump is working with the Russians to undermine the campaign overall. You're worried that the Russians, in this instance, are trying to penetrate a presidential campaign. And so you use the tools you have, you use them hopefully legally, and one of the tools they had was a, you know, a, a fellow who had worked in previous Republican administrations, who had helped the CIA and the FBI in investigations over the years. He's an academic, and he was asked to reach out to some of these folks in the Trump campaign and talk to them of what they were doing and get a sense of it. So it really wasn't about spying on the Trump campaign. It was talking to people who they thought were being targeted by the Russians. Um, so, you know, Trump, as he does again and again and again, is turning black into white, taking, you know, one line or two out of a newspaper story that says something that says A and saying, ah, this proves Z. And it's all to, as I said earlier, to distract and to make sure we don't focus on the real issues here, which are the Russian attack itself and Trump and his folks providing cover for this attack during the campaign by denying it was happening and also signaling to Moscow that they didn't care about the attack and were not upset about it because they were trying to create these private communications with the Kremlin while the attack was underway. Another big story breaking this week, though every day, of course, seems to bring a tidal wave of new developments in the Mueller probe, is the plea deal with the New York Attorney General's office cut by Yevgeny Friedman, business partner of Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former lawyer, whose offices were raided by the FBI last month. Uh, first reported by the New York Times, this agreement allows Friedman, also known as the Taxi King, for the money he's made in the taxicab business over the years, to claim tax fraud on only $50,000 worth of revenue he owed uh, from his taxis instead of the $5 million uh, worth of, of back taxes he was accused of owing the state. He'll also avoid jail time. Uh, David, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal for a guy accused of owing the state $5 million in back taxes. What do you think Friedman has to offer authorities that have led him to such a favorable deal? Well, you're right. It does sound like a very favorable deal to him. And to get a lot, when you're dealing with the feds or New York State law enforcement, you have to give a lot, right? They mean, you know, this is a guy with resources who decided not to take the case to trial. He decided to cop a plea, um, one that seems very beneficial to him. So we know that he is a business associate of Michael Cohn. Michael Cohn has put out a tweet statement claiming that the guy was not his partner, that he just used him to manage his taxi medallions. Now, anyone who's been around New York City for a while knows that the taxi medallion business has often had a pretty shady side. 
in terms of tax evasion, in terms of, you know, the sales and medallion, in terms of even organized, organized crime involvement in the taxi medallion business. So there are a lot of, you know, things one can speculate or imagine, you know, being at play here. But at the end of the day, if you're Michael Cohn and you're getting pressure from all these directions, from Robert Mueller's office, from this uh, Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office, which were the ones who, who raided, his, raided his office and home, and there are issues about your business dealings, about your relationship perhaps with Trump, about what you did or didn't do during the campaign, uh, and now about your private dealings involving the tax medallions or inv- involving New York City real estate. He had a he flipped a lot of properties. Some made a tremendous amount of monies in a very short period of time, and then he still seemed to be broke and needed to raise other other funds. These all raise very serious questions about his businesses and about who he might have been in business with, whether all this was done in his name or whether uh, or it was all in his name, was done for him or maybe it was being done for, for other parties. Um, so this is just piling on now in terms of the pressures being applied to Michael Cohn. And if you're in trouble with the law, there's really only one way out for you, and that is to cooperate and provide information that is valuable to uh, law enforcement. And we, you know, haven't seen any signs of Michael Cohen cooperating yet, but this is just one more turn of the screw. Uh, And if he has, you know, you have to have something to offer. I'm I'm not assuming that he does, but if he does have something to offer, Mueller, federal agents, New York State Office of Attorney General, whatever it might be, uh, he's gonna have a you know that he's gonna have a harder time not cooperating the more they line up against him in terms of possible charges against him. Earlier today, the polling organization Navigator Research released the results of a survey that found that 59% of the more than 1,200 registered voters they polled online between May 11th and May 16th did not believe the Mueller investigation had uncovered any crimes, despite guilty pleas uh, obtained uh, by five uh, people and 17 criminal indictments so far, why do you think so many Americans have lost track of the Russia probe? And is there anything yeah. you think journalists could do better in reporting on this story to get the word out that the Mueller investigation is at least technically bearing fruit so far? Yeah, and I saw that poll, and, and another question was, in essence, do you want Mueller to keep going and get to the bottom of things or not? Or do you think it's gone on too long? And the majority basically backed the Mueller investigation. Uh, but I did see that, you know, 59% were unaware or thought that there had been no indictments. And that is troubling because, you know, there have been a number of indictments and there are a number of guilty pleas. And these are all about breaking laws. Um, I do think, as we talked about a few moments ago, this, the story is very, very complicated. And it's hard for people to follow, and it's made more complicated by the fact that Trump and Fox News and his Republican allies spend a lot of time every day 
uh, try to make make it seem more opaque and 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 and, and throw up you know alternative facts and reality and make it harder to cut through to the core. And so, if you have a president who every day says witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt, I mean, he does it for a reason. He, you know, Trump may not know a lot about nuclear you know programs in North Korea, but he does understand branding. And he does understand marketing. And so if you keep repeating witch hunt over and over again, uh, the people who are predisposed to you, to listen to you, are going to observe that, that it's a witch hunt, and witch hunts do not produce results. So if he has a base out there of, I don't know, anywhere from 30 to 35% of people who are on his side and are you know taking what he says as the gospel, right there you're going to have a bunch of people who are going to believe him and see his accept his framing of this as a phony baloney investigation and not believe it's produced anything real. I mean, to me, what's you know frustrating as a journalist covering this is that I've you know I've covered a bunch of scandals over the years, and whether it was Iran Contra. You know, Whitewater, Monica Lewinsky, uh, campaign finance scandals. I didn't care for Watergate, but I know a lot about it. Uh, there was never a dispute once the once the revelations came out that there was a break-in at the Watergate. No one disputed there was a break-in at the Watergate. Once the revelations came out that Ronald Reagan and Oliver North had sold weapons to Iran and used the money you know, and giving them to the Contras. There was no question that that was indeed what had happened. But in this scandal, you have, you know, one side, so to speak, led by Donald Trump, denying that anything happened. You know, there was not, there, there were no, there were, there, you know, there were no interactions between the campaign you know, and the Russians. I had nothing to do with the Russians, Trump said. But we know, we know that his son, uh, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, and Paul Manafort, then the campaign manager, tried to collude. They met with a Russian emissary who was promising them dirt on Hillary Clinton. We know that George Papadopoulos was trying to set up a secret back channel with Russia. Uh, we know that when they denied Russia was doing anything improper during the election, they knew that was false with their claims. So uh, it's a, you know this is not just you know an issue now in which the public is debating like what's the best tax policy what you know should we go to war with Iraq or not go to war with Iraq it's really about is the sky green or is it blue and we're seeing it very hard for many journalists out there and for many institutions to fully confront a political force that says things that are just not just spin. We, everybody spins, and they try to stretch the truth for their own political advantages. But they say things that are just not at all true. Donald Trump, uh, you know, hours before we're talking here, is out there tweeting and saying that James Clapper, you know, the former director of national intelligence who's out with a new book now, um, has admitted that the intelligence community spied on Trump and his campaign. That's not what Clapper said. Clapper said they were spying on the Russians 
who were trying to infiltrate the Trump campaign. And they were doing it for the benefit of the Trump campaign. So Trump is out there citing Clapper to the exact opposite point of what Clapper said. And, you know, CNN and others out there saying, yeah, this is not what Clapper said, but they still don't have the power, the media doesn't have the power to quash you know, you know, false statements like this. And that clouds everything up. It's what Trump is trying to do. And in this cloudy mess, I know this is a very long-winded response to your question, but in that cloudy environment, it becomes harder for people who aren't following closely to see what Mueller has and hasn't done and what is real and what isn't. I wanted to sneak in one question about your book, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump, co-written with Michael Isakoff of Yahoo News. The book opens with the preparations leading up to the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Moscow, which Trump owned and oversaw. You describe a fawning Donald Trump making extreme overtures to the Russian government to meet Putin and even point to his tweet five months before the pageant where he wrote, quote, do you think Putin will be going to the Miss Universe pageant in November in Moscow? If so, will he become my new best friend? This calls into question the somewhat popular notion that President Trump refuses to criticize Putin because the Russian president has some dirt on him or has some materials of of potential blackmail. Uh, He was praising the Russian president before they ever met. So where do you think this almost fan-like devotion to Putin comes from? I think there are a couple of different elements. And as we also, you know, explain in the book, Trump, you know, had been going to Russia for, you know, decades. And it's quite clear that anyone who goes to Russia of any prominence is watched and recorded. And he did, I I should clarify that he did, in your book you describe this, tell David Letterman that he had met Putin before, uh, but but you could find no record of that meeting. Yeah, he he hadn't. But but what I'm saying is, (laughs) at at any time in in the previous few decades, the Russians might have gathered, you know, compromising material on him. I'm not saying they did, but I'm saying it's it's totally possible. But I think you know, a couple of things are going on in terms of this praising of Putin. Um, I think he has a psychological affinity for strongmen. He, you know, I think he wanted to be kind of an oligarch himself. He had spent 30 years trying to do business in Russia. He wanted to make a mark there. He wanted to be an oligarch. And I think we've seen as president, he's out there um, praising uh, the leaders of Turkey and the Philippines, who are autocratic thugs, and actually giving a hard time to American allies um, like um, Angela Merkel. Uh, he really seems to want you know, to be himself an autocrat. His tweet recently was, I hereby demand. So he looks at Putin and he sees a strong, dynamic fellow, and I want to be like that. I also think, you know, because he wanted to do business in Russia, he knew that he couldn't succeed there if he was taking a hard line on Putin, if he was criticizing Putin for his human rights abuses, for the attacks on gays and lesbians that were going on at the time, um, for, you know, uh, later on for the invasion of Crimea, you know, for the absence of, you know, true free speech and truly free and fair elections. You know, if you do that, you can't 
then build a skyscraper in uh, Moscow, which is what Trump was trying to do in 2013 and trying to do again with the secret negotiations in 2015 when he was actually running for president. So I think he, you know, you know, the way, you know, he's a charmer. I know the guy. I've met him a bunch of times. I have a family member who worked for him. And so he wanted to, you know, suck up to Putin. But I also think he wanted, in a way, to be like Putin. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with David Korn, the Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones and co-author of the book Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. You're listening to Trump Watch with Jesse Lent on WBAI New York. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Reggie Johnson engineered this program live. Gabriel Quimi is our social media intern. You can hear all 70 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is trumpwatchwbai. And I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then... I'm your host, Jesse Lentz. Talk to you next time. Thank you.